Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. Happy Independence Day weekend. On today's program, I'll catch up with the author of a new book that dives into the cultural impact of Star Trek. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review the new play Hurricane Diane. Later, I'll check in with the programming director at the Siskel Film Center to talk about its new concert film series. Now we'll hear all about a company that programs secret concerts all over Chicago and other cities. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. Few people could have predicted the impact Star Trek would have on popular culture when the original series first hit airwaves in the fall of 1966. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission, to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Over 55 years later, it's clear those themes still resonate with viewers all over the globe. The original Star Trek has spawned nine spin-off TV series, 13 feature-length films, and countless other adaptations and other media. While sometimes mocked, fans of Star Trek, aka Trekkies or Trekkers, are also pioneers themselves, paving the way for countless other fandoms that exist today. The new book Phasers on Stun takes a deeper look at the impact Star Trek continues to have on pop culture. It comes from nerd culture writer Ryan Britt, whose previous book is titled Luke Skywalker Can't Read and Other Geeky Truths. I caught up with Britt to talk about his new book, The Evolution of Star Trek, and how the original series started it all. You write in in the prologue about your personal connection to, to Star Trek, dressing up as Spock for three consecutive Halloweens. And I think we're around the same age, which means the original series had ended well before you were born. How did you... Uh, initially start watching Star Trek? So I was born in 81, so I was a very young kid when Next Generation started airing. But my dad um, and my mom were both uh, big fans of the original series. So I I came to the original series through reruns and VHS tapes. (laughs) You know, I still remember, like, the ones that I hadn't recorded off of, you know, reruns or whatever I would would, uh, get from the video store. You know, they would have, I think there was like back then, you'd have maybe two episodes. I, some of them, I think, were just one episode per VHS. So before uh, The Next Generation started airing, and even before that that first motion picture, though, it was really syndication that helped, would you say, revive Star Trek? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of, I, I interviewed um, Howard Weinstein, who was a writer for Star Trek, the animated series in uh, the 70s. He was a young teenager when he sold a script to the animated series. And he told me that, yeah, it's this kind of common myth that Star Trek was dormant in the 70s. And he pointed out to me, which is in the book, that 
that's when it really blew up, <laughs> you know, because of exactly what you just said, because of uh, syndication and reruns. The original Star Trek is often credited for its progressive casting and storylines, though reading your book, it seems unclear just how political series creator Gene Roddenberry intended to be. Is, is that your thought as well? Well, I think that he intended for it to be political at certain points, you know what I mean? And I think that the proof of that is sort of in what he was doing immediately before with the lieutenant um, and trying to get across sort of... Um, you know, messages of tolerance and uh, why racial division was, you know, tearing our country apart and things like that. And I think that he definitely had it. It was on his mind. You know what I mean? And he had ties to the NWACP before Star Trek. That said, I don't think that that's how he sold Star Trek. You know what I mean? It was There was no point in one of these pitch meetings where they said, and this show is going to teach people about racial tolerance. You know, it wasn't really in the series Bible. It wasn't necessarily something he communicated uh, to the writers that were pitching. It was more sort of a product of the casting and, you know, people like Michelle Nichols and George Takei really creating their characters with him, you know, and that's in the book, too. So I think that it's it's a little bit of both, you know what I mean, is that there's a, a bit of revisionism that suggests that that was the whole purpose of the show. Then you look at how the show was made, and it wasn't necessarily the entire purpose of it, but it, but it did end up becoming a huge part of it. And he just seems like a, an interesting guy. He was He was a police officer and a pilot before he got into TV. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's this, I didn't, I, I struggled with how much of the book, you know, could be a biography of Gene Roddenberry, and there's been several biographies of Gene Roddenberry, and they're very good, and I, you know, credit them in the uh, source notes in the back of the book, but yeah, I mean, Roddenberry, you know, was a was a commercial pilot and a military pilot, and, you know, he, he rescued uh, uh, people from a plane crash, you know, at one point, uh, you know, when he was a police officer, he was uh, writing speeches for cops, but he was also writing scripts on the side, you know, for cop shows. And I mentioned that a bit in my book of him writing for Mr. District Attorney and Highway Patrol and things like that. So, you know, all of that kind of structure and militarism, you know, that you see in Star Trek, I think, comes from that. But, you know, he didn't also like all of that structure. and He didn't necessarily like, you know, the cops. You know what I mean? So I think that you get some of that anti-authoritarianism, too. So um, if we had like a timeline of from the beginning of Star Trek, the original series, to, to now we'd have these different plot points of, of moments where different projects got started. In 1979, Paramount releases Star Trek, the motion picture, but uh, it seems like it was really the, the sequel, The Wrath of Khan, that, that seemed to rejuvenate interest in the franchise again. Yeah, I mean, the motion picture was on paper technically a box office success, but it still cost, you know, so much money to make, and part of that was because it was originally conceived of as a um, as a TV show at one point. There was like another Star Trek movie in 75 called Star Trek Planet of the Titans that never happened. Star Trek Phase 2 was going to be a new TV show uh, that was going to be launched on a Paramount network, which didn't end up happening at that time. Um, so all of those costs kind of overburdened the motion picture. And the motion picture was not, you know, by any account of people who made it, didn't seem like it was like a fun movie to make. The Wrath of Khan, and this, there's a lot of people right now that, that I think there's a big uh, motion picture revival right now saying the motion picture was actually great. And I think that that is true. But I don't think the motion picture will convert someone to Star Trek fandom who has never seen Star Trek. You know what I mean? Like, if I were to show somebody who'd never seen Star Trek the motion picture or show them the Wrath of Khan, which one was more likely to convert people? And so I think that that's the power of the Wrath of Khan. And uh, Robert Phelan, who was a producer on it, said this to me over the phone. He said, 
look, we got the people who weren't necessarily going to the Star Trek church every Sunday with the Wrath of Khan, right? They got the casual fans, too. And I think that that is the power of that movie, and that for a lot of people, their Star Trek fandom starts with the Wrath of Khan, which at the time was a really risky, dark, gritty sort of pivot. And so I think that that's why I sort of focus on it. I can't imagine the franchise evolving into what it became uh, if it weren't for the Wrath of Khan. Even aspects of the next generation that Roddenberry did were in response to the Wrath of Khan. Things he didn't like about the Wrath of Khan, he was sort of responding to. So that's even like a positive byproduct. You know, so I think it's, it's a really huge... There's a reason why that chapter is so long in my book. Sure. Today we think of... We as a, a culture embrace like different fandoms, different pop culture fandoms, but it, it wasn't always like that. And you re- there's a whole chapter about uh, Trekkies or, or Trekkers. What would you say? And, and it's not like you it's uh, you have to be just one, but what are the, the major differences between a, a Star Trek fan and maybe some of the other fandoms like Star Wars? Well, I would say that with Star Trek, you have more to choose from, kind of, right? Like you can have like independent kind of sub-fandoms, right? Like, and I think with Star Wars, it's a little bit more unified, oddly. You know, like, it's kind of like, there's the movies, and now there's the new TV shows, but with Star Wars, the TV shows are really recent. You know, those only released, those only started in 2019. So I, I, it feels unlikely that there are Star Wars fans who only have experienced Star Wars through The Mandalorian or something like that, though I suppose that that's possible. Whereas Star Trek, though, that's been going on for a long time. You know what I mean? Like, with, we started talked about this at the top of the call. Like, there are plenty of people who've never seen the original series but watched all the 90s Star Trek shows because they kind of stood on their own. Correlatively, there's a lot of people who, you know, may have gotten into uh, Star Trek because of the J.J. Abrams movies and then sort of liked that sort of cinematic look and so sort of watched the newer shows on CBS and Paramount Plus starting in 2017. You know what I mean? So that, that exists. You know, I, I, I talked to... Uh, Celia Rose Gooding, who plays Uhura on the new show, Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And she told me that she saw her first Uhura was uh, Zoe Zaldana in the 2009 J.J. Abrams movie. And I was like, right, because that movie came out in 2009. (laughs) And so somebody who's in their 20s now might have been a kid when they saw it. Um, So I think that the difference between the fandoms is that there's just a lot of more entry points for Star Trek. And I think that that's pretty huge. Where with Star Wars, it's kind of like, you know, the story of Star Wars is kind of like you're going to see the original trilogy at some point. You can't imagine somebody being a huge Star Wars fan who's never seen the original trilogy. You can imagine someone who's a huge Star Trek fan who's never seen the original series, though. And that is really interesting. Right. Yeah, I was kind of thinking of like a music analogy of maybe somebody who gets into, you know, a garage rock band from today and then you know looks for what influenced that band and then takes a step back you know and then and then eventually starts I listening the, to the blues or something i love the music analogy i was because i was inspired by this great book called uh, dreaming the beatles by rob sheffield who wrote this great book about the beatles and i was like why is the world need another book about the beatles and i love rob i love his writing and i thought that book was really awesome and i i thought i was inspired by that book came out in 2017 i was like i wish i could do that for star trek it's like a really great fun look at Star Trek for, like, the mainstream. And, you know, that's a great analogy. Like, what if you were really into Britpop? You know, you were just obsessed with, like, Oasis and Blur, like I was in high school, but then you never got into the Beatles or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? That would be, like, a Deep Space Nine fan, right? <laughs> like, they only like Deep Space Nine and Voyager, but they never went back. And, and you know what? That's valid. That's the cool thing about Star Trek fandom is that's valid. 
nobody's like, oh, you have to watch the original series. I think you should, but like, I know a lot of fans that just are like, nah, I can't get in the original series. I'm like, that's all right. That's, <laughs> <You can. laughs> that's what I was kind of curious about. Yeah, if there was people that maybe got into maybe the young people watching Picard now on uh, you know streaming on Paramount Plus, and then do they go back and, and watch the films, and then eventually the original series? Yeah, I don't know. With Strange New Worlds, it's interesting. Like the, which is the show that's coming out right now. Like, there's so much you'll get. You'll like be like, right? If you've seen the original series, you'll be. It'll be great because you'll say, okay, I understand all these references and I understand the things they're gesturing at. But if you're someone like you know, like my wife, for example, who's like a Star Trek, she's not like a huge fan. So sometimes she'll just be like, what are they referencing? It, it doesn't matter, right? Like, she'll never need to rewatch a muck time or something like that to appreciate, like, the Strange New World episode that's out this week that's kind of referencing it. It'll The new shows can kind of, like, stand on their own. I mean, I can't imagine watching Picard with no knowledge of who Jean-Luc Picard is, but I guess it's possible. Right, right, <laughs> you right. Know, I, I guess it's possible, and it, it would be kind of an interesting thought experiment, right? But, yeah, I don't know. Like, you know, the, the show... The, I guess it's like, you know, could you watch WandaVision without having watched Endgame, Avengers Endgame? Maybe, you know, and at some point we'll get far along in those kinds of fandoms that that'll be like it. So, yeah, I mean, I think that the MCU is an interesting comparison because, you know, Star Trek was kind of doing that in the 90s. You know, they had like two TV shows on, like Next Gen, Deep Space Nine, and then they had movies that were referencing those events. You know, and that nobody did that back then. You know, now we're just like, oh, everybody does that. But, you know, back then nobody did if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with author Ryan Britt about his new book, Phasers on Stun, how the making and remaking of Star Trek changed the world. And just to go back to, to something you said earlier about that actor who, who talked to you about Zoe Saldana being their inspiration, it, it kind of reminds me of a, a parallel with, with Batman. For me, growing up, Michael Keaton is my Batman because those movies came out when I was a kid and then I had an intern a few years ago and Christian Bale was his Batman and now probably in a few years I'll have an intern and his Batman will be Robert Pattinson. I, so I interviewed Timothy Chalamet because I was writing an article about Dune last year and I'm writing a book about Dune now and <laughs> Timothy Chalamet was inspired to become an actor by seeing The Dark Knight. <laughs> in the theater, you know, and so I, I, you know, I'm like, oh, right, because Timothy Chalamet is like 25, you know, and so I'm like, okay, right, that checks. <laughs> so I think that it's very similar. Star Trek's like that. It's like Batman and, and, and Bond and, you know, in that way. But the difference is, is that, like, with all these tributaries of, like, these shows and movies that completely kind of sidestep the really more the, the other characters. And then, you know, certain characters kind of get their moment, you know, and, and then kind of other shows don't even mention them, um, you know. So and that's something with like with like a Batman shared universe. You can't really imagine. You know what I mean? Like even like, a you know, a Harley Quinn movie will go out of its way to like mention the Joker. Right. right. Um, whereas like, you know, there's like whole seasons of, you know, uh, Deep Space Nine where nobody mentions anybody from the next generation or you know, anything. So I know you've written extensively about Star Trek uh for publications and from different sites, uh, what made you decide to, to, to create a book project? Well, that's a good question. I was really excited. I mean, this is the um, this weekend is the 40th anniversary of the Wrath of Khan, um, and so I was thinking about the idea that the that the Wrath of Khan anniversary was coming up in in, in two years. This was in like early 2020. I was thinking again. I mentioned that Rob Sheffield book, Dreaming the Beatles. I thought that was such like a. I really wanted to do another nonfiction book. My first book was an essay collection. I really wanted to do a nonfiction book that was just about one thing. And I know a lot about Star Trek. And 
since 2016, I've been reporting and doing journalistic work on the new shows. And so I was kind of like, what can I do with all of this kind of like information I have and thoughts I have? And so it kind of started off as maybe a book about the 80s. And then I talked with my agent and folks at uh, my publisher, and they were kind of like, what if we just did the whole thing and just kind of made it really accessible? And I was like, let me see if I can make this. Let me see if I can do that. And so it just kind of become, became this sort of like how to make a book for everybody about Star Trek. And, you know, I think I probably succeed about half the time. <laughs> no, it's... It's great. Uh, and then just uh, really quickly, your hopes for uh, for people that, that do pick it up, what they take away? I just hope that they take away like just like how improbable it is that this even exists, that we shouldn't take Star Trek for granted, but we do. We just take it for granted. We take for granted that it exists. Then when you look at the hundreds and hundreds of different people that were almost not in Star Trek or, you know, like it almost didn't come out this way. And then and then the fact that it did is just like, wow, we really got lucky that this exists at all. And so I think that, that just being awestruck by it, by its um, how uh, uh, varied it is, and you know the fact that Star Wars wouldn't exist without it, and the fact that the space program would look totally different without it, you know, just like you know maybe Barack Obama wouldn't give pursue politics because he loves Fox so much, you know. <laughs> so I, you know, I think it's, just, it's it's a lot to think about. <laughs> That's Ryan Britt. He's the author of Phasers on Stun, How the Making and Remaking of Star Trek Changed the World. And it's available everywhere books are sold. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the arts section every week right here on WDCB, make sure to check out the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want. Plus, you can find pictures and links that go along with all the stories you hear on the show. Check out theartssection.org. <laughs> And you are listening to the Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm joined now remotely by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Gary. Happy almost 4th of July. It's hurricane season at Theater Wit, where Madeline George's play Hurricane Diane recently opened. This is Massachusetts native George's third collaboration with the Chicago-based theater. Theater Wit Artistic Director Jeremy Wexler is directing this production, and I was working out how I wanted to describe the play in this introduction, but uh, I thought the uh, the theater company did a, a better job in their press materials. This is how they describe the play. Hurricane Diane is a whirlwind of a play about a butch lesbian gardener who just might be the Greek god Dionysus who's returned to stick a hot poker in contemporary society's collective blind eye to climate change. I don't know if there's much more I can add to that. You guys will fill in the details of what this play is about. Jonathan, what did you think? Well, uh, that's, a, that's a pretty good description. Uh, I think I may have a better one. Uh, <laughs> I, I say that this prize-winning play is an ecological lesbian comedy parody of the real wives of New Jersey. <laughs> and that's oh, what, nice. 
and that's quite a mashup. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a, and with a with a scotch of, of Euripides in there as well. <laughs> well, well I, I said it's written in the spirit of Aristophanes, ah, know, the great yeah. the contemporary of Euripides, the fifth century BCE Greek comedy playwright who used raucous, ribald comedy, which this play certainly has, but he used comedy to address deadly serious themes. And uh, I think that's kind of a, this this play in, in terms of its dramaturgy in a nutshell. But it's not, we should let people know, it's not about the real Hurricane Diane that struck the Carolinas mm-hmm. in 1955. No, this is set uh, in more contemporary times. And it's surely, it's certainly in New Jersey, where uh, Gary, as you said, Diane actually is the ancient god Dionysus, who now walks among us as a lesbian <laughs> landscape <Right>. contractor <laughs> dedicated to permaculture. Right. Now, for those unfamiliar with permaculture, it's a set of land preservation and usage principles designed to return the earth to its natural state in harmonious coexistence with humanity. One principle, for example, is rewilding of lawns and golf courses and other suburbanized natural features. And for those whose mythology may be rusty, Dionysus was the god of fertility and fruitfulness and wine and ecstasy. (laughs) (laughs) I think Aristophanes is a really good, you know, uh, connection to this, Jonathan. You know, I think that one of the things I, I I haven't seen all the work that Madeline George has done. I did with Theater Wood. I did see several years ago the staging they did of Seven Homeless Mammoths Wander New England, which also is kind of about, you know, history not having a place. In this, the case of that play, it was these little poor dusty bones of these uh, mammoths that were stuck in a small New England college town's museum, and nobody ever visits them, but that's also sort of a metaphor for the relationships in the play. I think here what's happening is, in some ways, it's a very simple kind of schematic staging. Diane, played beautifully by Kelly Simpkins, is trying to start the Dionysian cult all over again and has decided, well, what better way than to come to the women where they live, and she's going to get four women all of whom are, I believe, in Monmouth, New Jersey, uh, living in the same, you know, cul-de-sac or neighborhood, all of whom have, I think, significantly survived a real hurricane. Now, they don't mention it by name, but given the New Jersey location, I think you can make some connections to 2012's Hurricane Sandy, certainly. Her idea is that by coming in with, as Jonathan put it, with this idea of permaculture, she can get them to sort of reconnect with their own wildness and, uh, you know, and join her in kind of Give Dionysus his due, once again, his, her due. I guess a little fuzzy with the pronouns, because definitely Diane is being presented as a woman here. And so she has her moments with each of these women, and they all have, you know, different aspects of which they are wrestling with either loss or unhappiness in their own lives. There's Beth, the woman at the corner, whose lawn is kind of going crazy anyway because she's divorced, she's depressed, she's not taking care of it. There is Carol, who is stuck in a loveless marriage. There is uh, Pam, who is closest, I think, to the real housewives kind of stereotype. She's a very brassy Italian house, you know, Italian woman, very much prone to, you know, large, outsized, colorful animal prints. Um, and then there's uh, Renee, who actually does write for HGTV magazine, but is, you know, has, has her own, has had her own same-sex relationship in the past that she seems to be referencing an awful lot for a married lady. <laughs> and, um, right. She's kind of 
really taken to with the idea of this, you know, this kind of wilding of the lawns. So right. it's, you know, using the lawns as a metaphor for what they are looking for in their own life, getting, whether it's getting back to their roots, you know, native, you know, whatever, whatever is native to them that is supposed to be flourishing. Um, I found this, a, I'll just say flat out, I just thought this was a very funny and very clever and highly enjoyable production with just enough of a, you know, of a, of a twist of kind of mournfulness and recognition of the fact that, in fact, yeah, that indeed of the way that we, we run our lawns, the way that we have built our lives, may be running headlong into a collision course with what the best needs of Mother Nature herself. Now, the, the big question here is, will Diane be able to recruit Carol and Pam and Renee and Beth mm-hmm. uh, into her cult, uh, which does involve uh, enjoying ecstasy mm-hmm. with Diane herself, code word, ecstasy with mm-hmm. Diane herself. And she needs all four of them. She tells right. us in a prologue, she needs all four of them to rekindle her cult and begin the task of saving the world. Mm-hmm. Meantime, there is another hurricane brewing just off the New Jersey coast. I agree with you, uh, Carrie, that the comic vein of Hurricane Diane is really sharp and rich, and director Jeremy Wexler has really assembled an ace cast to knock it out in this really fast-moving 90-minute show. Uh, Kelly Simpkins, a towering figure, is returning to Chicago, where she began her career, as Diane. And, you know, it, it's so interesting to me to watch her very expressive face, even when she isn't speaking. Uh, I've seen her in a lot of serious mm-hmm. work over the years, so I've forgotten how good her comedy chops are. Let's pause here for a moment and listen to a, a clip from Hurricane Diane. In this scene, we'll hear the opening monologue from the Diana character played here by Kelly Simpkins. I was huge back then. <laughs> My name was on the lips and tongue of every frustrated housewife in the greater Mediterranean. <laughs> How I worked my mysteries is, I would ride into town on a leopard or bull or leopard bull hybrid, if they had one handy, my rose gold curls billowing behind me and I'd call out, women, my women, come to me. And then I would draw them out, out past the city walls, out into the fragrant wilderness beyond. There they would taste my honey, gulp my wine and thrash and writhe and weep and dance and stroke animals and become animals and cry out my name over and over. This is in my heyday I'm talking about. (laughs) And then it was so weird. They forgot about me. I mean, at first they all still knew my name, but it started to have like a quaint ring to it or like air quotes around it. Oh, you know, Dionysus. And then it devolved into an adjective, something any imposter could be, Dionysian. And then, I mean, you know your story. You started to settle for ecstasy knockoffs, creature comforts and customer satisfaction. And at a certain point, I just stopped putting myself out there. But gods don't die. They just change form. That was Kelly Simpkins as Dionysus in Theodore Witt's new production of Hurricane Diane. There's a great line describing her uh, that she is a bush charm factory, and you absolutely see that. (laughs) She is absolutely hypnotic and 
and seductive, and I, you know, I absolutely believe that these women, save one, do tend to, you know, come around to uh, to falling for that for that charm. You know, and it's it's a fine ensemble cast. The four wives, um, they're all terrific, but I especially enjoyed, as you did, Lori Myers as the brassy Italian wife, especially the way she was costumed was in the series of clingy leopard print dresses. You know. I was going to say, does Diane succeed? Well, I don't want to give it away, but I will say that when the hurricane finally hits, the suburban house explodes in front of us in a really neat piece of scenic design by Joe Shermley. And I think that there's, uh, you know, what's interesting, for all of her brassiness, Pam is also a very security-minded person, so there's a little bit of that dichotomy that, you know, she's got the safe room where they're going to go, and, you know, she always carries... You know her hurricane kit with her, so she's not, you know, a, a, she's not a spur of the moment person at all. You know, and I think there's also some mournfulness, you know, particularly in Carol, uh, beautifully played with, you know, buttoned down kind of uptightness by Carolyn Cruz. She works for a pharmaceutical company that has kind of been under fire for a, a drug that seems to give, oopsie, you know, cardiac damage to infants, you know, that sort of thing. Um, she doesn't seem particularly contrite about that. She's trying to run life on her own terms, even though her husband has apparently quickly lost interest in her. And she has this one speech towards the end that I thought was actually quite poignant in the midst of all this, you know, insanity, where she's, she's talking about she just wants comfort, and she doesn't care what it costs. She doesn't care what the effects might be on the planet overall. And she said something like, why should I sacrifice even one of my comforts when my comforts are literally all that I have. And I think that's something that resonates with a lot of people, particularly maybe coming out of a pandemic, coming out of all the things that have happened. On the one hand, yes, we're supposed to pull together when things get tough. On the other, I think there's also that human impulse to be like, no, wait a minute, you know, I'm just going to get mine and gather it and just take care of me. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, it's not something that George is making, you know, a huge billboard neon kind of point with. But it's there, and I think it's important to note that um, in the midst of all this, you know, this high-energy antic comedy, you know, there are those moments that, you know, made me think, oh, that's a little too real. <laughs> and I don't know if you had the same reaction, Jonathan, but I think that that's a testament to the cast and, uh, and George's writing, and really Jeremy Wexler's direction, that he knows when to pull back enough to let those moments land as well. Uh, as you talk about them, of course, I recognize them. Uh, they, it, it didn't hit me that way as I was watching the show, but they definitely are there. Uh, Hurricane Diane ends, for me, with far less resolution than I expected, mm -hmm. especially given the lively and energetic journey to that point. I don't want to say too much because I don't want to give away the ending. And I think it should be noted, too, that the lesbian angle really has nothing whatsoever to do with the ecological theme. It's an arbitrary device Madeline George uses to sharpen the play's satire, which it does, although satire isn't really the play's purpose, which is why I found the ending somewhat of a surprise and I guess a little bit of a letdown. I can uh, see that. Uh, other yeah. than that, this is a play that just sparkles through you know, 90% of its, of its running time, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the ending, it's a little disquieting, and I wasn't sure if that's yes. because there's an irresolution to the writing and structure itself or if it was something that was sort of deliberately left there 
for us to kind of read into. But that aside, I think that these, as, as you said, Jonathan, it's a terrific ensemble. I love the set. And, I, you know, and I did reference the Baca, and I think that is part of it, too, that there's kind of the, yes. the gender the gender reversal where, you know, it's these, the, the main ads, these women are going nuts for this woman and not a male god, you know. Um, but with the aims, uh, uh, you know, the underlying, I guess you could call it, altruistic, if gods can be altruistic, aim of, I really just want to help save the earth, and you know I'm going to do it one lawn at a time, one woman at a time. <laughs> so it sounds like two recommendations. I absolutely, yeah, just for the acting itself, and I yeah. and I think it's as you said, Jonathan, it's fast paced. I didn't feel myself getting bored at all. I mean, I was just very much present um, with with all of these characters. Yep, yeah, I would say yes. It's, it's a fine cast. It's fine direction. It's a wonderful scenic design, and and if you go for. Uh, for uh, for uh, uh, leopard print uh, dresses, it's an outstanding <laughs> show on that count, too. <laughs> That's always a positive. Theater Wits Hurricane Diane continues through July 31st. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, Gary. Always good to talk with both of you. All Let's right. do it again next week. How's that? <laughs> Let's do it. It's a date. I've been... Loving you too long to stop now. I'm Gary Zydek. This is the art section. This, of course, is the legendary Otis Redding performing at the 1967 Monterey International Pop Festival. Become a habit to me. I've been loving you. Oh, too long. Redding's performance was captured beautifully in the D.A. Pennebaker documentary Monterey Pop. It's one of 11 concert films that will be presented at the Gene Siskel Film Center this month. The film exhibitor is celebrating live music with a series titled In Concert. The series will cover a wide range of music genres and documentary styles, including 1959's Jazz on a Summer's Day, all the way to this year's Oscar winner for Best Documentary, Summer of Soul. I recently checked in with Siskel Center Programming Director Rebecca Fons to talk about her approach to curating this series. Was the idea for this uh, somewhat sparked by the Film Center's ongoing 50th anniversary celebration? Yeah, you know, as we've been celebrating our history, we've definitely been exploring the history of cinema in all ways, shapes, and forms. So, you know, we have a, a weekly series where we're showing a film from each year. We've been open in in order so we started in 1972 and we've been chugging along each week we've done a and we're in the middle of a, a judy garland centennial retrospective and for this series called in concert uh it does really feel like a bit of a anthology of uh the concert documentary and the history of the concert documentary from you know from the 60s and the 50s to films that are, are, are more contemporary and, and more recent. So I think we've been, we're all kind of in that, like looking back and how that past kind of influences our present and our future in a lot of ways. So I think everything we touch this year programmatically is definitely 
steeped in our own history and our own uh, anniversary celebration. Right. So there's, uh, there's a huge canon of concert films out there. Mm-hmm. Well, and you just kind of like alluded to it. You were obviously looking back, but what were some of the the things you were looking for in films when you started to program the series? Sure. Yeah, I mean, you were right. It, uh, the concert doc is a very vast uh, genre. It's really, I, there were even films that I, you know, ha- wasn't as familiar with that I sort of had to, you know, uh, educate myself in. But, but overall, I was looking at presenting films that re- represent a really broad array of musical styles and genres, and also sort of everything from um, kind of a more, I guess you could say, a more kind of like straightforward uh, concert documentary like Jazz on the Summer's, Summer's Day, which is really just like a, this really incredible sci- sort of stylistic snapshot um, of the Newport Jazz Festival in 19, late 1950s. Just something like Contemporary Color from 2016, directed by Bill Ross and Turner Ross, which is, uh, it's a little bit funkier. It's, it's David Byrne putting together a, a concert with color guard dancers, you know, so you get some sort of like behind the scenes and the, in the hallways of the arena where they're presenting. You get a little bit of the competition of the, uh, the color guard teams that will actually perform during the concert. So you really get to see a little bit of everything, um, that, that it sort of makes up the concert documentary because it, it can be very kind of straightforward, verite style of just people at a concert, or it can be sort of behind the stage, behind the scenes, and, and sort of process of that moment that, they, of the, that a musician takes the stage. So we wanted to kind of dabble in all those different aspects of the concert doc genre. And when I think of, uh, yeah, I'm a pretty big music fan, so like if concert films come up, the three that pop in my head are, are Don't Look Back, Monterey mm-hmm. Pop, and then uh, Beyonce's Homecoming on Netflix. So I know that's not part of the, the series, but the first two are, and they both come from, uh, for listeners that aren't familiar, this uh, filmmaker, D.A. Pennebaker. And so mm-hmm. he, for folks that aren't familiar, he was really kind of a, a pioneer in this in this type of work. Yeah, I had to be careful not to make it too much of a D.A. Pennebaker <laughs> retrospective because he really did, yeah, you're right, he really did pioneer the, the genre. And I will say, um, a Homecoming, Beyonce's film, not without lack of trying. <laughs> okay. You cannot, uh, they aren't taking theatrical booking. So uh. there are a few films that are excluded, you know, uh, the... Um, uh, Stop Making Sense, the, the Talking Heads doc is currently embargoed. I think there's, you know, an anniversary coming up, so you can't program that right now. But believe me, I, there were films that I really wanted to show that I love that I had to kind of kill my darlings, and then there were films that just literally aren't available to cinemas right now, which sort of happens. It's kind of like par for the course. But, but yeah, I mean, there, there's Thea Pennebaker, and then we also have um, Murray Lerner, who, who directed a festival and was you know, very much in that, that world of the concert doc. And then also Jonathan Demme, we have Neil Young, Heart of Gold, and, and Jonathan Demme, I believe, did a two Neil Young um, concert docs. So there's some, some, there some very familiar players within the world of this genre, so it's fun to, to kind of pay lip service to them as well as do this more expansive look at the genre. And yeah, obviously, I, I figured since uh, 
Homecomings on Netflix that there was probably <laughs> some special, some special rules with that. Indeed, uh, yeah. yeah. And then you did mention that 1959's Jazz on a Summer's Day, and mm-hmm. uh, obviously we play a lot of jazz here on WDCB. And, and I actually, I think they re-released it a, a couple years ago, so I watched it, so it was like fresh in my mind. It is a mm-hmm. a must for jazz lovers. It's like that's an incredible lineup of jazz musicians, and then yeah, the the color. I just like enjoyed the the shots of the the crowd, the style on display. Yeah, I don't know. If, feel good is the the right word but yeah it, yeah it I, you're totally right it's like you know the, the director one of the directors Bert Stern was a photographer he was a fashion photographer he took some very famous photos of uh, Marilyn Monroe that people probably don't even realize that he took those photos and so he had a clear eye not just for the performance on stage but also like you said like the style and sort of you get such a um such a a, a vibe uh, of of this this um, Rhode Island the Newport Jazz Festival. It's like 1958. So you're getting these great performances, but you're also there's so much great um, footage of the crowd and of people and 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 the and the style. Lots of great hats, you know, just people sort of hanging out on sort of a sweaty day. Um, and it it is feel good in that you just sort of immerse yourself in a time and a place and a people in a really really entertaining way. Um, it's just sort of almost like looking through a photo album of of this this event, but you know, it, but with music and sound and an image, uh, moving image. So it's it's really lovely. It's one of my favorite films in the series for sure. I think there's a uh, eleven films that are going to be shown. We we've touched on most <laughs> most of them. But we you know we don't have to go through each one. But I did want to highlight because I'm uh, personally a huge David Bowie fan. So um, this there's a. a concert film from uh, the filmmaker we referenced earlier da pennebaker ziggy stardust and the the spiders from mars and this mm-hmm. kind of like captures the the final performance as uh, that when he was that ziggy stardust persona mm-hmm. yeah it's i mean it's so great because just like jazz on a summer's day sort of captures a time and a place ziggy stardust and the spiders from mars does does the same there's really something happening kind of culturally across certainly the U.S., but also in the U.K., kind of like what's happening with shifts in, in style and, and performance and, um, and sort of pop culture. And then at the center of this, you have David Bowie, as you said, performing as Ziggy Stardust, and it's, it's, it's sort of his final hand performing as Ziggy Stardust, which is feels like the ending of, of a chapter and, and turning the page to a new chapter of, of just sort of music, certainly of David Bowie's uh, career, but also just culturally, it's just a real sort of shift and change that that D.A. Pennebaker is able to capture through this one concert. If you're just tuning in, this is the Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Siskel Film Center Programming Director Rebecca Fons about the organization's concert film series that's taking place all month. Another thing I wanted to bring up, and I think we've talked about this in the past, is just about the experience of, of watching a movie with other people in person, which is something that uh, those of us who love film weren't able to do for much of the past uh, two plus years. There's just something different about that experience when you compare it to just watching something at home. And then I was thinking when it comes to checking out these concert films, which I would imagine many people have only seen these releases at home because uh, a lot of these films haven't been in theaters in decades, if 
if at all. So most people have watched these concert films at home uh, on some type of TV screen or maybe even a tablet or phone screen. So when something like this comes around and there's an opportunity to, to see these movies with like-minded people all in one place, uh, I think there's there's something special about that, not to overstate the, uh, the importance of, of watching movies together in person, but uh, there's a communal effect, right? For sure. I mean, to, to watch crowds in a crowd <laughs> is always really exciting. And then also, you know, we're showing, for instance, like the, the director's cut of Woodstock, the documentary from 1970, and we're showing that on 35 millimeter. I think it's coming to us on, I don't know, it might be 12 different reels of <laughs> oh, wow. 35 millimeter film because the film is over 200 minutes long. So it's really a really long film. It's expansive. It's, it's very complete. It's a holistic look at Woodstock. So to be able to see that film, you know, sure, you can pull it up, you know, on you know YouTube or, you know, some ripped version of it on your phone, but to see it on 35 millimeter in an audience and to also see it in the summertime, you know, I, I, we definitely are placing this, this series very purposefully in the middle of kind of the dog days of summer here in, in Chicago because, A, we have really good air conditioning. <laughs> what a relief to watch people sweating while you're not sweating. But also I feel like there's this, this sense and there's, there's this energy in Chicago and, and in so many American cities of, of that, that sweaty crowd and the sweaty audience and, and listening to music outside. So, so we're, we're encouraging people to, even if they've seen these films or haven't seen them in a really long time, to come in and check them out with a crowd because you never know someone in the audience maybe was at one of these concerts or, or really, really was uh, shaped and formed by the musician that we're showing on screen. And, and yeah, to watch a crowd with a crowd with the uh, the joy of air conditioning is really a lot of fun to do. Um, and, and the music's just great. I mean, whether you're a, a you know a, a, a jazz fan or a, a hip hop fan or a David Byrne fan or you know, there's so many different great musical genres that are on display in the series. So it's, there's a little something for everybody, uh, and you get to sit down too. You know, at concerts you have to stand full time. So that's right, that bonus. Right. <laughs> Not not me anymore. I've got to that age <laughs> yeah. now where if I'm at the Riviera, I go upstairs. I can't. I, I know. I, maybe this is me wanting to experience these concerts with sitting down. I think that's <laughs> what it is. I'm like, I don't know if I would have been built for Woodstock. I don't think I could have done it. So, yeah. And, you know, and certainly Lollapalooza is coming up here in Chicago and Pitchfork. So we're, we're timing it. Um, whether you're complimenting your, your, your concert going, in-person concert going with this series, or if you're skipping those and choosing to be at the film center instead uh, in the comfort of your seat. We're, we're timing it so you can get a full kind of expansive look at, at music and concerts uh, and the concert going experience. Right, right. So the 50 year anniversary celebration is continuing. Any, can you give us any sneak peeks of what's, what's ahead? Oh gosh. Yeah. Um, in terms of the 50th um, programming, and as, as I mentioned, Monday nights, we are, showing a film from each year we've been open and order we've been open and i can yeah we've got really great films from yorgos lathamos coming up to celebrate 2009 uh the filmmaker lucretia martel will be on display for our 2008 film uh and joel and ethan cohen in 2007 so if you have cinephiles listening they can probably deduce based on the the film uh or the directors and the years um what films were showing from each of those artists uh, but yeah, we're we're having so much fun, kind of exploring uh, our history through these these very critical kind of flagship titles from each year. And then in August, um, uh, we're presenting a, a series called the UCLA Pioneers of Queer Cinema Program, which will run all through August, which is 
truly what the name says, it's pioneers in the uh, queer filmmakers and pioneers in queer storytelling um, on the big screen. And that series will include 16 millimeter, 35 millimeter and digital projection. So it's a really, really wonderful series. One last thing, this already happened, so we're not promoing it, but I know one of the big events was this virtual interview the the Siskel Center hosted between Matt Damon and Robert Downey Jr. How did that go? It was so much fun. I mean, Robert Downey Jr. and his wife Susan are such huge supporters of the Film Center um, and have been on our board for um, just over 20 years. We honored uh, Robert Downey Jr. in 2010, and he's been on our advisory board since shortly after we honored him. And they're such great supporters and so wonderful, and they recognize what the Film Center represents for cinema and, and what an important part of the cultural fabric in Chicago is. So, so yeah, Robert Downey Jr. and Matt Damon together on the big screen, and they did a really fun, funny, and poignant um, sort of tour through Matt Damon's uh, filmography with clips and a lot of laughs and, and a lot of really great stories from Matt about kind of the behind the scenes of, of how he got into certain characters or how particular moments in a film were crafted. So it was so much fun, and then we, we awarded um, Matt Damon with our Renaissance Award. So really great, and it was a a blast in person as well as as watching them virtually so uh so a lot of fun and we will um be you know continuing to plan for future honorees and future guests in person and virtually at the film center which is it which is always really fun yeah it sounds like it was a lot of fun and the concert film series sounds like a lot of fun looking forward to that rebecca always appreciate you making some time thank you thank you so much and hoping hoping to see you at the film center soon oh she may be wielding. That was Rebecca Fons. She's the programming director of the Gene Siskel Film Center. The organization's in-concert film series continues through July 31st. You can find a complete schedule of what's being shown at siskelfilmcenter.org. But when she gets wielding, you try your little tenderness. I had to use this opportunity to play a little more Otis. This is also from the Monterey Pop Festival in 67. I know she's waiting Just anticipating The thing that she'll never, never, never possess No, no, no But while she's there waiting Just a little bit of tenderness That's all you got to do Now it might be A little bit sentimental now You're listening to the Arts Section My name is Gary Zydek, Otis Redding, right there Happy almost 4th of July love live music, there's something undeniably alluring about the prospect of a secret show. A London-based company is taking that concept to the next level by curating and presenting hundreds of secret shows around the world. The idea for what today is called So Far Sounds was born in London back in 2009. Today, the company produces performances in 325 cities across the globe, including here in Chicago. 
Essentially, users go to the SoFar Sounds website and search their home city for a neighborhood and buy a ticket, not knowing who's performing or the exact address of the performance. What you do know is you'll see three live acts from a wide variety of music genres, and the performance will be at an unusual venue. And despite a pandemic pause, people seem to really like the concept as SoFar Sounds continues to grow. I recently caught up with the company's Chicago-based host operations manager for Central North America, Tori Hughes, to learn more about SoFar Sounds. So for folks that aren't familiar with this concept, how do you like to describe what SoFar Sounds is? We are a global music community of music lovers creating a space where music matters. Um, We do this through intimate concerts in unique locations, and we try to create lasting connections between artists and fans without the distractions or crowds or people talking or drinking um, and being loud around the shows. We wanna make sure that artists really have a platform to share what they need to share. Um, we do we do pop-up shows essentially and we transform everyday spaces. So usually not your typical concert venue, but more like a living room or a rooftop or a boutique or museum. And we try to turn those spaces into captivating venues for secret gigs and creating inclusive experiences that bring people together. Let's talk a little bit about how it works then from the uh, user side of things. So somebody visits the SoFar Sounds website and finds their city, and so for my audience, Chicago, and then they'll see like a menu uh, of different neighborhoods, and so they can select. Yeah. I'll let you kind of describe it. They can select the neighborhood, and then they buy <laughs> they buy a ticket, but they don't know exactly what they're going to see or where exactly it's going to be. Yeah, exactly. So they go to the site, they can see the neighborhood listing and the date the show's taking place. And then just like the overarching venue restrictions. So say a space is 21 plus, it lets them know if it's BYOB or not, if there will be alcohol for sale, um, if there will be pets present. Those things are shown on the front of the site. But other than that, they have no idea where they're going or who they're seeing. So once they grab a ticket, they will receive the address 36 hours before the show. But the artist lineup is secret until they arrive. So when they do arrive, our shows, um, they typically feature three acts, completely different genres for each act. Uh, We want to make sure that no artist feels like an opener or a closer of the show. So three different genres. Each artist plays for the same amount of time. Guests come, um, typically sit on the floor. It's very like picnic style. Um, Artists usually don't perform on a stage. And there's just this intimate connection that's created through these shows when these artists perform um, that guests can enjoy. And there's no talking or texting during the shows either. So it really is like a you-have-to-be-there type experience. So using Chicago as an example, are you are you able to share, like, what would be an example of a potential venue? Yeah, so actually a little sneak peek for anyone listening. Um, we have some upcoming shows at some pretty iconic spaces downtown, like the Rookery is one of them. And um, Chicago Athletic Association is also hosting with us. But these venues can range from anywhere in Chicago, from someone's living room to um, Garfield Park Conservatory or the top of the Willis Tower. We've done them all. (laughs) So like the Rookery is like this uh, great piece of architecture. How does something like that come about? Is it uh, you or your team reach out to uh, like an interesting venue or a site that you think would make for a great location? How did some of these partnerships come about? Yeah, so it's a little of both. Um, Word of mouth is huge for SoFar Sounds. It's how we've really grown to the scale that we're at now. For the Rookery, 
specifically, they actually applied to host with us, which was really cool. When they came through, I was fairly new to Chicago um, and finding that space was just an absolute gem. They reached out to us, they heard about what we did and they were interested in hosting. But a lot of the, the spaces that we host with also come via word of mouth from our crew that help work the shows. Um, our artists will suggest spaces or know someone that runs a space and connect me. Um, it comes through all different avenues. And so I was reading a little bit, and I didn't realize, like, really the origins go all the way back to, to 2009 for So Far Sounds. I don't know when it, you know, came to Chicago, but over the years, I'm sure some, like, now famous artists have gotten their start through So Far Sounds. Yeah, absolutely. We champion a couple um, really big names that have played So Far Sounds in the past. We've had a show with Billie Eilish. We've had Ed Sheeran come through. We have had... So many different artists here in Chicago specifically. Um, we've done a show with Twista, who's like a rap icon known as the, the fastest rapper alive um, from Chicago. We have done shows with Saba, Vic Mensa and his new group, 93 Punks. Um, we had Julian Baker performing in 2017 in an apartment here in Chicago. Tank and the Bangas have performed in Chicago. Um, you just really never know who you're going to see when you show up to our shows. It could be someone that really takes off in the future, like Leon Bridges used to play so far sound shows a lot, Bastille, um, all kinds of artists have, have started off with so far shows and getting that, those audiences, you know, stuck on their music and they just take off. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about it in terms of like, you know, merging artists, you know, young artists doing this, but someone like Twista, obviously he's been around for a long time. So do you see Sometimes, like, established artists reach out and, and want to do, like, a surprise show? Yeah, we have. I mean, the uh, Ed Sheeran show that we had was actually a part of our Amnesty International partnership that we did um, in 2017. And it's things like that that get artists excited about, you know, being a part of so far. But we've had artists, bigger name artists, apply through our website. I can't put a, a name to the application right now, but I remember very distinctly shortly after I started with So Far, a very high profile artist reached out to us um, just through the application process. And we were just like astounded. <laughs> we were like, you could just, you know, reach out via email and we'll get you on a show. You've obviously proven that you are uh, an established artist, but yeah, definitely. I think that something unique that So Far brings to an artist's life that's used to playing on, you know, these big stages with these these giant audiences is just that intimate the intimacy of the room like there are people that are looking at you they're not talking or texting they're just respecting your music and we've even had artists that play these these huge shows that say even so far shows can be a little intimidating even if you're just in a someone's apartment with 50 people playing a show where everyone's looking at you and every single person is paying attention and not speaking can be a little intimidating even for the bigger artists so oh, sure it's, it's really cool to see who wants to get involved with what we're doing That was Tori Hughes. She's with So Far Sounds. You can check out the company for yourself at SoFarSounds.com. This land is your land. This land is my land. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. 
My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Happy Independence Day. Thanks for listening. for you